Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local area. Today's show features Father Vince Free, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, and his series entitled The Mystery of Vatican II, recorded at St. Raphael Center in March 2008. And now, Father Vince Free. So the question is this, is there any way in which to bring Catholics beyond these, this condition? Um, when you get right down to it, the greater wonder is that so many people are not only unwilling to accept Second Vatican Council, but they're not even prepared to read it or to understand it. And uh, many Catholics have capable of serious thought don't even seem to care that it happened. And John the 23rd, you know, or not John the 23rd, John Paul II said uh, this was the greatest blessing of the Holy Spirit on the church in, in, at the end of the, the uh, 20th century. He used it as a preparation. The implementation of Vatican II was the best way to prepare the church for the third millennium. And when he was at a meeting in... Uh, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, I think Haiti, it was the 19th plenary assembly of the, the bishops of Haiti. He said, it's the first time he used the term, the new evangelization. That new evangelization, he never used the word renew, because you can switch and twist and renew all over the place. But when you say evangelization, new evangelization, that has real meaning. He said new evangelization because it was close to the 500th anniversary of the discovery of America. 1492, this was 19-whatever, five years, 89, I suppose. Um, but that's why I use that term, new evangelization, because the new world had been evangelized, but now it needed a new evangelization. So the, uh, what we, the question we have to ask is this. Should we declare the council a lost cause to be taken by some as the whipping post for all of the church's current ills? or by others as a fanciful dream now fading into disillusionment. <laughs> Those are your choices. What do you think? <laughs> well, one thing that can be done is, first of all, to clear away the misunderstandings and misgivings that cause people fear and anxiety. And I think that's, although it's not very inspirational, it would at least allow people to look at the real issues. But is there any way in which to dissolve all the confusion and rancor? And there's a lot of that. If there's any hope, as you might guess from what I've said, it lies in the direction of establishing the purpose. Why was the council called? Not in trying to prove what it was or what it said or what it didn't say. And this, this is really what the, most of the arguments come down, that they, they said this and it didn't say that and so forth. If you do this, if you understand why was the purpose, investigate the purpose, it does two things. First of all, it goes a long way towards removing the threat of unacceptable change and understandable anxiety about being subject to the arbitrary control of people with their own agendas. That's what happened to a lot of people had their own agendas and then people were forced into this or that pattern of behavior, conduct, or belief. And that was wrong. So going back to John the 23rd, beloved by all, we can see that he was as deeply concerned about peace and human progress as were his predecessors. He was determined to see the church become more of a factor for good. Paul VI was a kindred spirit. I didn't mention there the Mater et Magistra and Progressio Popolorum. They were encyclicals written by John XXIII and 
Paul VI, and especially uh, Paul VI's witness to the UN. That was, you know, when, when popes didn't travel, he went, Paul VI went to the UN, and that's when he said, you know, that we have to invite all people to the table of humanity. It was a very powerful speech he gave. Uh, and also his apostolic exhortation on evangelization in the modern world. These really exemplify what the Second Vatican Council sought to achieve, to enter into a saving dialogue with the world in order to share what the church had found to be at the heart of humanity's search for meaning and peace. In their minds, the minds of the council, Pope John XXIII and Paul VI, the time for adversarial relationships had passed. So with this as background, we ask then this pivotal question. Was there a need for a council? If there had been no need, there would be little reason to accept the council. If there was and still is a need, there would be equal reason to accept it. Again, some people are against the council because they said, all councils before this were called because of some problem with a dogmatic statement. This one was called, we didn't have any problems about dogma and occasioned all kinds of problems about dogma because they didn't understand those two things. So at this point, two things are clear. The church, at the time of the council, faced a monumental task. Two, the church was not adequately prepared to accomplish the task, to get it done. I mentioned what Alfred Delp said in one of my talks. He was a Jesuit priest who was in a Nazi prison, and he wrote a very good book. It's worth reading. It's uh, Meditations in a Nazi Prison. It's like an Advent. It's time for the time of Advent, you know, preparing for the coming of Christ. And he saw that Christ had not come to the world. And one of the things he said in there was this. In spite of all right reason and orthodox belief, the churches are coming to a dead end. Not just the Catholic Church, but all the churches. What does it mean? They were irrelevant. They weren't doing any good for humanity. Everybody went to church, and the church and, and the world went to hell. That's what it was, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. So they faced a monumental task, and the church wasn't prepared to accomplish the task. Now, I want to return one more time to this liturgical reform to try to illustrate what I mean. Liturgical reform was, of course, the thing that got the most attention and caused the most rancor. This can serve to illustrate what happens with the loss of a higher purpose, the why. Worship, of course, is a fundamental concern. As spiritual beings, without worship, we die. So what reason might we have to change our worship? The reasons I gave before, as you recall, were to make the symbolic action more meaningful and to engage the congregation in a more active participation. Isn't that nice? Make the symbol of symbolic action, the liturgy is a symbolic action. Make it more meaningful and engage the congregation in active participation. Now, take notice that this doesn't look to any purpose beyond worship itself. Let's talk about worship. Yet once we define the church as the council did, worship must become meaningful in a very specific way. It's not just meant to keep God in a constant state of repair. Here's what the council said. By her relationship with Christ, the church is a kind of sacrament or sign of intimate union with God and of the unity of all mankind. She is also an instrument for the achievement of such union and unity. 
That's from the opening paragraph in the Council's Dogmatic Constitution on the Church. So why do we worship? Do we worship just to save our souls? or um, Why do we worship? Just so we don't fall into sin? We worship to be transformed into a communion of people, a community of people, a people of God with a mission to bring the good news to the people of the world in desperate need. You know, prior to the council, most people experienced public worship as what? As an act of religion very similar to private prayer. You went to church and there was really no understanding of the communal dimension. And there was little awareness of the liturgy potential for promoting reconciliation, for imparting a sense of corporate identity, for building community and strengthening solidarity across ethnic and racial lines, and finally for giving shape and substance to a Christian's readiness to bring about the kingdom of God. I'll tell you a little story just to illustrate this. My brother, one of my brothers, Joe, was director of sales training for RCIA in a time when RCIA sold all the TVs and all the stereos and all this stuff. And he had to uh, train all the, the uh, what do they call these, area, the directors. And, and he did this out of uh, Indianapolis, the, the, the home plant, the corporate headquarters of RCIA. I was stationed at the time in a place called Aurora, Illinois. So every once in a while, I was about an hour from Chicago. He was two hours from Chicago. <laughs> every once in a while, we'd just meet for dinner and for lunch. And... Uh, one time we, we got there and he says, oh, we're talking about this and that. And he says, oh, he says, by the way. I said, yeah. He said, well, he said, it just happened. I said, what happened? He said, well, he said, I got my token black. He got his token black on, the, on his team. And by that he meant, well, I don't think this guy's really trained well enough to do this work and it's a demanding job and blah, 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 you know. So I didn't say anything. I said, oh, okay. About six weeks later, we meet for lunch. We're talking about this, that, and so forth. And I said, well, how's it going? He says, oh, he says, you know what? That black guy I got on my, he's a Catholic. <laughs> See, common worship does develop trust and does give you a different perspective on other people. There's a lot of things that happen when we worship, even to my brother Joe. So, that's what we have to understand is that when we talk about liturgy, the liturgy is to bring us into intimate union with God and to equip us for the task of living and proclaiming the good news of God's love. Under this rubric, changes in the liturgy would be aimed at transforming us into a unified body with a mission, identifying us as the people of God, bonded in respect and love for one another, and fortified in the Lord to go forth to proclaim the gospel in word and deed, to people everywhere. Now, if that's what you do when you go to church, hey, your liturgy's working. That's a much different picture than the one that most Catholics were given. Even with this good understanding of the reasons for changing in the liturgy, and with the highest motivation to become a more visible and caring community, a congregation will still find change difficult. This merely emphasizes the importance of the why over the what or the how. The why is what matters. Public worship takes on greater meaning once it, when, when it is seen as the avenue through which God enters the community. Now, one of the big problems after Vatican II was these liturgists came out and they said, do away with these private devotions. Right? Terrible. Because 
It's in private devotions that you develop the habit of prayer, where you actually understand, bring God into your life, your personal life, so that when you go to church, you know how to pray and you can enter into this, this communal worship. But if you don't have a private devotion, you're not going to, you go to church and you know what you're going to say? I don't get anything out of the liturgy. Of course you don't get anything out of the liturgy. You don't even know how to pray, you know, let alone worship together with others. We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. A man of words. This surely describes the late Archbishop Fulton Sheen, a master communicator who brought to millions the message of the missions and the teachings of the church. But perhaps Archbishop Sheen would have us treasure most his silence. One hour a day, each day of his priesthood, he made a holy hour before the Blessed Sacrament. Archbishop Sheen drew on that lifelong intimacy with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament as he spoke and wrote. Find the time each day to place yourself in the Lord's presence, centering your life on Him. It's a lesson from the missions. Brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at onefamilyandmission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this one family and mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio presents. You can, you know, without shared worship, you can be in touch with God, but not in touch with God as present among and within each and all of the community. I think even young people might bring themselves to worship if they saw it as more than a form of spiritual narcissism, a taking care of me and my own, rather than an act of being constituted as the mystical body of Christ and strengthened in our capacity to preach the Lord Jesus to a world in desperate need of meaning and purpose. So summing up as succinctly as possible then, the Second Vatican Council was an exercise in management planning. It produced a blueprint and a mandate for cultural change within the church aimed at nothing less than the radical transformation of the culture and cultures of the world. In plain language, the council was a call for a new way of being church, a way that identifies us as the people of God, not an institution. People called to holiness with a commission to lead all men and women into God's kingdom of truth, unity, justice, and peace. So here we do have a reason for hope. Why? Because there's a growing understanding of the significance, the role, the workings of culture. As a concept, culture looks more to the why than to the what, while it takes both into account. Culture is more focused on the formal than on the material cause. It provides a context within which we can understand evangelization, which Pope Paul VI represents as the definitive purpose of Vatican II. In his apostolic exhortation on evangelization in the modern world, Pope Paul VI says explicitly that, that the definitive purpose can be summed up in a single one, to make the church of the 20th century ever better fitted for proclaiming the gospel to the people of the 20th century. The task at hand, as he explains in paragraph 20, is nothing less than a transformation of humanity, individually and as a whole, 
Quote, what matters is to evangelize man's culture and cultures, not in a purely decorative way, as it were, by applying a thin veneer, but in a vital way, in depth and right to their very roots, in the wide and rich sense which these terms have in Gaudium et Spes, always taking the person as one starting point and always coming back to the relationships of people among themselves and with God. I'll just comment on that last sentence there. Always taking the person as one's starting point and always coming back to the relationships of people among themselves and with God. That's the definition they gave to the church. Intimacy with Christ, instrument of unity and unification of humanity. But why do you take the person as a starting point? You know, there were a lot of people that objected to Vatican II. They thought, you, what are you doing? This? You, you, you can't start with the person. You've got to start with God. Well, actually, I, I don't know which one of the popes said this. He said, you know, you can't really know the person unless you know God. But you certainly can't know God unless you know the person. So they, they, you have to. And what the Vatican II said was, look, God created human beings. We just didn't hatch out from under a rock or something. We were created by God. And God had something in mind when he created us. And that's where we can find his revelation, in the very per- the human person. And that's what we understand by starting with the human person, that we are social by nature, that we have conscience. You know, you never feel good about doing something bad, unless you're a sociopath or... You know, someone just has no psychopath. The why is the definitive purpose of Vatican II. To evangelize the culture and cultures of the world. This phrase, culture and cultures, refers to the fundamental and universal human culture that must be based on the natural law and to that variety of cultures that are expressed in the arts and foods and family traditions and government and so on. So when you say culture and cultures... You're, uh, there's many cultures in the world, but all of them. This is why John Paul II talks about the transcultural truths that are true in every culture, even in Muslimism, and how we, if we have a culture that is so essential, we must, we must, uh, we must extend that to other people, and we must accept that which is fundamental also in our own culture. So what do we mean by culture? I, I, this is the best way to say it was what Jesus said when he said the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. The same thing is true with culture. Culture, we're not made to serve culture. Culture is made to serve us. Whether it be native or western, ancient or new, no culture has validity except insofar as it promotes the well-being of its people and protects the common good. Culture is comprised of all those conventions, social institutions, values, truths, and principles that are found in tradition and or in common law and which taken as a whole enable a person, a people rather, to work and to live together in harmony, preserving the dignity and freedom of individuals while promoting the common good of all. Culture gives a person identity identity, and gives people a common purpose. In a word, it authorizes human behavior. Now, religion, or the lack thereof, is always a significant element in the culture of people. In fact, the word culture comes from Latin cultus, which means worship. And uh, this, the need, the importance for religion is especially uh, 
in preserving and celebrating values and setting up social signposts that promote or prohibit certain forms of behavior. Within the largest civilization of any guy, uh, time or place, culture has a culture, of uh, religion rather, has a culture of its own. If you uh, take the religious culture of the Pharisees, for example, what was it? It was extremely rigorous, ritualistic, self-serving, focused on externals, and lacking in compassion. In fact, it turned the whole purpose of religion, upside, of worship upside down. It was meant to draw praise on them rather than to give praise to God. The culture that Jesus proposed in proclaiming the good news of God's love was opposite to what the Pharisees espoused. They wanted power and privilege. Jesus stood for mercy, kindness, forgiveness, human solidarity, justice, and peace. He brought a practice of worship <clears throat> that began with interior conversion, <clears throat> pardon me, and which recognized the exclusive and absolute goodness of God. The Second Vatican Council, in calling for personal conversion and for a total reorientation of our lives to God, proposed the same culture. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, this, you know, this when remember when the rich young man came up to Jesus. Jesus was about to go on a journey, and this rich young man comes rushing up and dramatically falls to his knees before Jesus and says, "Good Master," he says, "What must I do in order to attain eternal life?" and the first thing Jesus says to him is, why do you call me good? God alone is good. Whoa. And then, you know, the rest of the story, this guy, you know, he says, Jesus says, you know what the commandments are, do those, you know. And the guy says, well, I've done these since I was a youth. Now, we usually think of conversion as like a, a turning away from sin, right? When you experience conversion, change of heart, you turn away from sin. Actually, conversion is, thanks, Barbara. Conversion is a turning away from self. That's what it is. When you turn away from selfishness and you buy into this culture that Jesus came to bring. And when we can do that, then we really have experience. God's love in our lives and ready to share it for others. I, I've got all kinds of other stuff here, but I, I do want to just treat of one other thing that I think is very important. You know, with the undermining of authority in the church... Uh, that was, how was that, where did that really happen in the worst way? Who knows? Humanae Vitae. That's where it really happened. And what was Humanae Vitae all about? Life. Especially birth control. This, uh, this whole issue of birth control came up in the fourth session. Third or fourth? I think, wait, wait a minute. Let me see if my notes say that. No, they don't. But it came up in, oh yeah. The topic of uh, contraception, which had arisen due to the advent of effective oral contraceptives, was deferred to a commission of clerical and lay experts that Paul VI had appointed. Now, you'd probably like to, it's interesting to note that this, one of the guys who developed that pill was a Catholic. And he attended, often went to daily mass. His name was Dr. John Rock. And he was the first guy, he worked in the Harvard Medical School. He taught obstetrics and gynecology for more than three decades. In the 1930s, at the Free Hospital for Women in Brookline, Massachusetts, he had started the country's first rhythm clinic 
for educating Catholic couples in natural contraception. He was a pioneer in a lot of other areas, and his two collaborators, Gregory Pincus and Min Chu Chang, worked out the mechanisms. He shepherded the drug through its clinical trials. Now, this is what John Rock believed. He believed that the Catholic Church would approve use of the birth control pill based on the 1951 acceptance of the rhythm method by Pope Pius XII. And the reason given by the Pope was that the rhythm method did not kill the sperm like a spermicide or frustrate the normal process of procreation like a diaphragm or mutilate the organs like sterilization. John Rock believed that the pill should be considered a natural method of birth control. Now what actually happened here was that Pope Paul VI appointed this commission and he said, look, he says, due to the fact that uh, this new pill has been created, could this be different than artificial birth control? Does this have a different psychological effect? Would this have the same effect on a person's emotions as would an obvious, you know, like a semaphore or an artificial birth control? Well, this, this so-called commission got together, and instead of ans- answering the question about the ovulation pill, they come up and said, oh, artificial birth control is okay. And Pope Paul VI said, hey, That's not the question I ask you. I know artificial birth control is not okay. I wanted to know, does this pill make it possible for this whole concept, this emotional concept and psychological concept that I'm using you and you're using me, does it wipe that out? Does it eliminate it? And they didn't answer that question. This, I think, was very unfortunate. And there are all kinds of other aspects of this. We uh, really don't have time to go into, into all of them. But one of them is what they call the census fidelium. People quoted the sense of the faithful, you know, that if the faithful, a lot of faithful do this, well then, it should be okay. The only thing is the census fidelium is always used with an awareness of what are the effects. Like when, when the church finally agreed that it was okay to take interest on a loan. All the faithful have been doing it without any bad effects. But when you look at the effects that came after birth control, there's a lot of effects that would say, hey, this not healthy for society, for an individual, uh, divisive in marriage, it doesn't promote... Uh, in fact, you know, the, the, the Chinese, can you imagine? The Chinese government has trained 50,000, this is three, four years ago, trained 50,000 people in how to do the Dr. Billings method of natural birth control. <laughs> but we, we haven't figured this out yet. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.